This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. In this program, China passes America to build a new world order. But climate disrupts the big game, author and historian Alfred W. McCoy. Direct from the Yukon, broadcaster radio Rob Hopkins with The View from the North. Remember normal? You grew up in a world with fractures and tensions, sure, but overall there were rules and agreements spanning human settlements. Power in the world order seems to be shifting again, but this time the long history of empires and geopolitics is hitting a wall. It is not just the COVID attack from the micro-world. According to scientists, all species could be approaching the possibility of mass extinction as the world heats up. Alfred W. McCoy is the Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is author of more than a dozen books, including In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. But Professor McCoy's latest book adds climate change to the usual games of human power. The title is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. From Madison, Wisconsin, Alfred McCoy, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Oh, thank you for having me. Are you still sure American global power is declining? Oh, I think there's there's every sign of it. By the end of this decade, by 2030, uh, there are going to be a couple of major shifts that I think indicate the eclipse of U.S. global power, the end of U.S. hegemony, which has existed since 1945, the end of World War II. Most fundamentally, the economic foundations for global power which are the basis of any empire over the past 500 years, are shifting markedly in, in favor of China. The international accounting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers projects that by 2030, uh, China's economy will be at $38 trillion, and it'll be about 40 to 50% larger than the size of the U.S. economy. And that gives China just enormous power in the global stage. Second, since in China... And the United States spend over the long term about 2 and 3% of their gross domestic product on defense. That means that by 2030, China's military will no longer be a near-peer competitor, to use the Pentagon's phrasing, but an actual peer competitor with the United States. And there are already signs that China is ahead of the United States in a number of critical areas that make a difference, not just the massive throw weight of of tanks and trucks and ships and planes, but the strategic technological edge that determines the outcome of battles in the modern world. Specifically, the Chinese have have, uh, launched successfully a hypersonic missile. Those are missiles that fly in excess of 4,000 miles an hour. There is no American defense for such a missile. And if launched, that means that uh, a U.S. aircraft carrier off the coast of China maneuvering in the in the great power politics, uh, such as those aircraft carriers do, it, it can be basically eliminated. We may have bigger aircraft carriers than China uh, right now, and that means that simply we have bigger targets. And then there's the, the security of satellite communications, which are a critical domain of contestation. You know, basically all the the three C's of command, control, and communication have U.S. military forces globally go by satellites. China's satellites are much more secure in terms of their communications. Uh, Our satellites can be either hacked or shot out of the skies in the event of conflict. So 
in all kinds of arenas in the military domain. Uh, China is catching up and is likely to be superior in 2030. And that means if the contest comes to a fight, uh, and it may, it's likely to occur in that critical geopolitical flashpoint between the China coast and the, the Pacific littoral running from Japan uh, through the Ryukus, Okinawa, Taiwan, the Philippines, all the way down to Australia. That's what the Chinese call the first island chain. So it's in that sort of 200-mile span of water. At best, let's say if we have two U.S. supercarriers, we've got 150 jets that we can deploy in such a contest. Because it's close to China, China has in excess of of 2,000 combat aircraft that they can deploy Plus, they have something called the carrier-killer missile, which the U.S. Navy regards as a major threat to its ships. And so when the Pentagon a couple years ago did a a war game, uh, had run a series of war games uh, about war between China and the United States over Taiwan in the Taiwan Straits, China won 18 out of the 18 war games. So even the Pentagon knows that a a war where it's most likely to occur with China, we're going to lose. So that means basically, in terms of the the substrate of economic power and the the, the potential for military conflict, China will be dominant by 2030. In your new book, To Govern the Globe, you suggest the turning point for China's ascendancy is the Belt and Road Project. It's strange how many people in North America don't know about that. How would you explain it? It's the largest development project in human history. Many people would be familiar with the Marshall Plan. After World War II in 1948, the United States voted a very generous program that provided about $13 billion for the redevelopment of Europe. In Europe, about 30% of all housing stock was destroyed. The Allied bombing of Germany had just devastated the cities of Germany. The the continent was, was cold and hungry and at the edge of starvation in many areas. And the United States came through with the Marshall Plan that rebuilt a ravaged Europe. And the the prosperous European Union we see today is in many ways attributable to this generous aid program. Well, if we correct it for inflation, it's about $100 billion. The Belt and Road Initiative is projected to be $1.2 trillion. In other words, it's 12 times larger than the Marshall Plan. And instead of being directed at just one continent, Europe, In fact, the Belt and Road Initiative is directed at three continents. First of all, China is laying down and and has largely completed a transcontinental infrastructure of gas pipelines that's now being followed with transcontinental rail lines that are the construction expansion that is ongoing. They're extending similar infrastructure uh, efforts to, to Africa, which China has long treated as a global development partner. They've been active in aid programs in China since the early 1970s, major aid programs, targeted infrastructure, the Tanzan Railroad, for example, that now crosses the breadth of Africa. So the combination of this massive program of $1.3 trillion uh, is going to do two things. First of all, it's going to integrate the whole of the vast Eurasian landmass into a unitary infrastructure and market. And since Beijing is building that infrastructure, the products and profits are going to flow as if by natural law towards Beijing. And Eurasia is the home of 70% of the world's population and 70% of its productivity. So dominating Eurasia 
is tantamount to dominating the global economy, indeed the globe. Moreover, as Africa's population and human potential grows, China is in on the ground floor. Massive infrastructure projects, you know, complex but effective collaborative relationships. We in the United States tend to regard Africa as kind of a charity case, you know, or the Gates Foundation worries about public health. It's all very nice, but we're treating Africa historically as much as we treated. During the Cold War, we treated it like a battleground. Now we're treating it as kind of like a charity case. China treats Africa as very much as a serious economic partner for the building of a global economy in the 21st century. And together they're fusing these three continents into something that the father of modern geopolitics, Sir Halford Mackinder, back in 1904, called the World Island. And he said in one of his many famous axioms about geopolitics, he said, and basically, heartland controls Eurasia, and he who controls Eurasia controls the world. And that geopolitical truism remains true today. And China is maneuvering through the Belt and Road Project to dominate Eurasia. Moreover, as a part of this project, not only they laid down that kind of grid, that steel grid of roads and rails and gas pipelines across the continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific, across the span of 6,000 miles. But they've also ringed the coast of Eurasia and Africa with a string of 40 ports, commercial ports that China either is built wholly or is, uh, is redeveloping with its own capital. And the combination of uh, the rail grid across the continent and the ports ringing the, the Eurasian and African world island landmass places China in the position of basically dominating Eurasia. And you have to understand, okay, historically, for the past 500 years, this is something that I actually learned in writing this book to govern the globe, starting with Portugal, Spain, Holland, Britain, the United States, and now China, over the span of 500 years, the span of centuries, these very diverse succession of imperial powers have one thing in common, that their, their rise to global power has been synonymous with their dominance over the Eurasian landmass, and their, their decline has been simultaneous with their loss of control over the Eurasian landmass. Okay, so uh, at the very start of the Cold War, the United States became the first power in human history to build uh, an empire without peer on the planet, and it its geopolitical foundations lay through its capacity to control what we might call the axial ends of Eurasia. Through the NATO alliance in Europe, they got massive uh, air, land, and sea bases that gave it dominance over that end. And through four bilateral mutual defense pacts with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia, the United States was able to build a string of military and naval bastions down that chain of islands that formed the Pacific littoral. And through this strategy, the United States had control of the axial ends of Eurasia, and then it linked them with bands of steel, a series of military alliances from NATO to CENTO to CETO to the ANZUS alliance with Australia and New Zealand. And then it built two massive fleets, the Sixth Fleet in the Atlantic and Mediterranean, the Seventh Fleet, in the Pacific and Indian Ocean. To that, they eventually added the Fifth Fleet in the Persian Gulf and hundreds of military bases ringing Eurasia. And, you know, for 70 years, the United States has exercised its dominion over Eurasia and thus laid the geopolitical foundations for its global power. 
And we've been on top for so long that we've forgotten the geopolitical foundations and fundamentals of our power. And now it's being challenged. You can, you know, scamper right round through the, the news clips and look at the eruption of flashpoints around Eurasia, which the media treats quite responsibly as individual cases. But when you add them up, when you connect the transcontinental dots, what you're looking at is nothing less than the ongoing erosion of U.S. control over Eurasia and thus the eclipse of its global power. In your own words in Tom's dispatch, you asked the question, what does it take to destroy a world order? And this applies, I think, to our study of climate change as well, because you seem to say that a world order has its inertia, it wants to keep going, but it takes something really big to knock it off. First of all, let me very quickly define the difference between an empire and a world order, because world order is used loosely. I use it in a very specific sense, okay? Uh, empires are, are, are hard, physical domains defended by armies, often have boundaries, so they're, they're palpable, they're physical, all right? World orders are far less palpable, they're, but they're, they're far more persistent and pervasive. Empires are all about territories and armies. World orders are about nothing less than human civilizations. World orders govern the languages people speak, the laws they observe, the way they work, worship, and even play, okay? This is known, I suppose, in contemporary parlance as soft power, but it's much more deeper and pervasive. So Washington did two things when it built its empire without peer on the planet at the end of World War II. It arrayed those military forces across Eurasia, as I've just described. But the second thing it did, very importantly, was it built a world order you know, that is embodied in the United Nations and, and literally hundreds of international organizations that are all grounded on two fundamental principles, universal human rights and the idea that all human beings are a part of national communities which have the right to inviolable sovereignty. So universal human rights and inviolable sovereignty. And as, as the U.S. global power fades around 2030, the big question is whether or not the world order, this liberal world order the United States has built, is also going to fade. And there's every sign that China has, first of all, little respect for the international rule of law that undergirds the, the U.S. world order, and second of all, has very little respect for the human rights, which are one of its fundamental principles. China's world order, as it emerges after 2030, is likely to be far more transactional, mutual advantage, without condition on government probity, performance, or integrity, or human rights. So it's going to be a, a different kind of a world order that emerges under China. And you mentioned climate change. Well, you know, so let's say, let's assume, you know, looking forward into the murky mists of the future, that U.S. power fades by 2030 and China ascends. That's not too surprising, okay? The question then is, how long will China's world order last? And China is literally digging its own grave. Um, China is not only building a dynamic world economy, but it's also doing it on fossil fuels. China, as it announced at Glasgow earlier, is not even going to begin to introduce climate change reforms until its next five-year plan, which starts in 2025. So they won't even start till 2025. And China's committed itself to being carbon neutral by 2060. India's now committed itself to being carbon neutral by 2070. What the rate we're going, uh, that means that climate change is going to surge ahead 
driven by China, which counts, accounts for right now 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so, and China, with its own coal-based electrical system and its propagation of coal plants as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, means that these emissions are going to increase. So what's, if you look at the environmental science, it's clear that by 2050, rising sea levels mean that Shanghai, which was dredged from swamp and sea, starting in the 15th century, is going to sink back into the waters from whence it came. That means that the most economically dynamic city in China, home now to 18 million people, is going to be largely underwater. And the second thing that's going to happen, starting around 2070, but actually building in the decades before that, is the North China Plain is going to become one of the least habitable places on the planet. Now, the North China Plain, which is that part of China between Shanghai and Beijing, is currently home to about 400 million people, about a third of China's population. It's also a core agricultural and industrial region. It's in many ways China's heartland. And that by 2070, uh, the North China Plain is, according to environmental projections, going to experience something called five incidents of 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature. Now, what does that gobbledygook mean? All right, wet bulb temperature is the balance between heat and humidity. And when you get to 35 degrees wet bulb temperature, a healthy adult human being sitting at rest is dead within six hours because the body can't sweat. You're just dead. And so that means that China is going to go through this absolutely unimaginable series of heat waves. And apart from those, those crisis inflections of 35 degree wet bulb temperature, they're going to have hundreds of incidents of 31 degree wet bulb temperature, which is extremely dangerous, not death, but extremely dangerous for human beings exposed to this climate. So between the two, China is going to have to start around 2050 withdrawing from the world and the world order that it created. And that, of course, leads us to uh, an opening. That means for the first time in five centuries, if not six centuries, we will have a world without a world order, and that creates the possibility of constructing a very different kind of world, which we can talk about a bit if you've got a chance. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. We are talking about the New World Order and climate change with well-known historian and author Alfred W. McCoy. I noticed that you are a scholar of Southeast Asia studies, yet you picked the Mediterranean Basin as a starting point for climate force change. Why is that? Because that's one of the regions of the globe, along with the Arctic, that's most likely to be adversely affected by climate change. Uh, starting in about 2010, Syria had one of the worst droughts in the modern era that produced lots of social conflict and movement of population you know, that contributed very much to that civil war and the out-migration of hundreds of thousands of Syrians you know, into Turkey and then across the Aegean into Europe and all the problems that ensued from that between 2016 and 2018. So that's kind of, you know, one of the, if you will, along with the Arctic, one of the canaries in the coal mine. And because it's a densely inhabited portion of the globe, the consequences are such that we can see them. Between 2016 and 2018, uh, there were three movements of population largely or at least considerably generated by climate change. There were the movements of people from the Middle East through Turkey into the Greek islands into Europe, uh, Africans from sub-Saharan Africa crossing the Sahel and then crossing the Mediterranean into Europe, and then the movement of Central Americans, particularly Guatemalans, 
through Mexico to the southern border. And this movement of population produced a, an enormous backlash, the rise of very angry, very aggressive right-wing populism, evidence across Europe and uh, in the United States. It contributed to Donald Trump's successful presidential campaign, his Build the Wall campaign slogan was kind of, you know, uh, basically build the wall on the southern border of the United States to stop the illegal Central American migrants from entering the United States. So what was the source of all this ferment on the right, this rise of hypernationalism and the erosion of international cooperation between 2016 and 2018? You add it all up, it's just two million people, okay? By 2050, the projections by the World Bank, the UN, and everybody says that minimally, by 2050, there will be 200 million climate change refugees. And some estimates go as high as 1.2 billion. Okay? So if you can imagine all of the political backlash from just 2 million people, how is the world, without some kind of global order, going to deal with this global disorder of mass migrations of absolutely unprecedented nature? Okay, and you know, I, I think that, that there are three possible reforms that we can do in the current international order to begin to turn global disorder with, with you know, unimaginable conflicts, water wars, uh, ships being pushed out to sea with migrants to just sink in the, in, beneath the waves. I, I mean, just, you know, horrors without <laughs> beyond imagining, okay? So how do we turn global disorder into an alternative global order? Well, if we work from the current apparatus, the United Nations, there are three, I think, simple shifts of sovereignty, slender but significant, that could occur, that could begin to address this. First, the UN could consider carbon emissions to be a violation of sovereignty when one nation emits into the atmosphere. That's violating the sovereignty of all other nations. And so there would be a ban and a requirement for carbon neutrality, okay, accelerated carbon neutrality. Second, that... Instead of the voluntary resettlement and all of its chaos that we see now, in which the UN High Commissioner of Refugees is struggling to, to adapt and accommodate these human flows, when, when they surge to these levels of 200 million or 1 billion, then we have a mandatory resettlement on the basis of accessible and usable resources. And third, a third cessation of national sovereignty would be that the voluntary capital transfers, supposed to be $100 billion dollars, much discussed and debated at Paris first and then Glasgow at these UN climate conferences, and which haven't been fully paid, okay, that these transfers, instead of being voluntary, would become mandatory. Transfers of capital from the survivable, habitable, temperate zone to the troubled tropics, so that a maximum number of people would be spared the ordeals of migration and could shelter in place with capital support to adapt to climate change, which is possible. When you think about it, one of the things I, I learned about the study of world orders over the past 500 years, that as a, an essential part of their apparatus is the form of, of energy. In the Iberian Age, when Spain and Portugal were dominant from roughly 1500 to 1800, or at least their ethos was dominant, the, the form of energy was human muscle power. And so that was the nature of the slave trade, to maximize the energy output of the human body. And then in the British Imperial Age, which succeeded the Iberian Age, it was coal-fired energy 
coal-fired steam power that allowed the British Empire to, first of all, extirpate the slave trade, and second of all, transition to a non-muscle-power-based order. And so we got the, the coal-fired energy and, of course, the emissions. In the American era, we went to a more efficient form of fossil fuel. We went to petroleum, right? right? And now what we're switching to is alternative energy. Now, if you think about the, the coincidence between the structure of global power and the energy apparatus that we have, what we've got is, you know, um, seven or so powerful oil major companies backed by the military might of the United States controlling the production and distribution of energy and all the politics that comes from that, okay? So it's, it's a, a very steep hierarchy of corporate and military power. And potentially, what we're looking at is a diffusion of energy uh, through renewable sources. It's possible with solar energy, you know, and we're going to have to fight our, our energy companies over this, that, that everybody, wherever the sun shines, would have their own solar panels and their own energy. So there would be a decentralized energy structure, much more democratic, that could complement this much more democratic international order at the United Nations. That would entail, for example, a simple reform of the Security Council, ending the permanent seats and distributing seats on the Security Council on a much more democratic basis. So we could have a much more democratic international community grounded in a much more diffuse and decentralized energy system. And that gives me some hope of the possibilities of change and coping with the climate crisis circa 2050. Professor McCoy, what are you working on next? That's a very good question. What I'm working on next is actually trying to think through the implications of what I, the book I just finished. What I just told you about the correspondence between the democratic, the more democratic world order and the, the more diffuse and decentralized energy system, that's implicit in the model of my book but I didn't quite articulate it fully and clearly enough. And so, you know, I'm, right now I'm, my, my, my step is I'm, I'm writing a series of articles for the, this online journal, Tom Dispatch, to get picked up by the nation and, you know, get translated. My last essay was translated into German and Spanish within like two days. It, it's, a, there's a, just, you know, it's one of the things about the Internet. You, when you put something out there that's got market value, the market spreads it. So I'm writing these essays and trying to think through the implications of the model that I built in that book. Because it's, it's proving, I think, and forgive me for saying this, you know, I, I mean, you know, objectively, to be a very useful model. And it's going to take me time to, to, to realize the possibilities of my own model through my own writings. My next article is going to be on what I just, what I just talked about here. I've been thinking this through. Okay, that, that balance between changing the United Nations to be more democratic and having this diffuse, decentralized system of community-based and household-based energy systems. Well, for me, this is the first real application of climate science to the study of geopolitics that I've seen, and it's uh, very, very informative. We've been speaking with Dr. Alfred McCoy, historian and professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His new book rewrites the history of the future during the climate crisis. Look for To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. You can find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Alfred, thank you for sharing your time and your insight. Thank you very much for the conversation. This was a great conversation. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org.
You're listening to Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Scientists agree the first big tipping point in climate change has already triggered in the Arctic. Extremely rapid warming, permafrost thaw, and disappearing sea ice have changed Earth's energy balance, and it speeds warming around the world. Radio EcoShock covered this in several recent programs. Most Arctic land and seacoast is found in Russia and then in Canada. In fact, about 40% of Canada is above the 60th parallel. Only about 120,000 people live there, the majority being Aboriginal people. Thawing land is shifting. Coastlands change. Long-standing ways of life are in trouble. To find out more, we go to a 40-year resident and radio broadcaster in the Yukon Territory from a village on a lake south of Whitehorse. Rob Hopkins broadcasts to the tiny community of Tagish and to the world by the Internet. From the Yukon, Rob Hopkins, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hey, uh, nice to uh, meet everybody out there. Uh, Hello, Alex. So you're the other Rob Hopkins. I tend to think of the uh, transition guy, but you're sort of Radio Rob in the Yukon, I gather. Yeah, Radio Rob. Uh, I've been uh, working in communication 30 years now. I live in a small community, 120 kilometers southwest of Whitehorse. I suppose most people living in Canada's north experience climate changes. What is most noticeable in the Yukon, would you say? 40 years ago, when I first uh, came here, you would get minus 40 below Celsius for three weeks in November, and then uh, cold all through the winter. And then that changed, uh, you know, the 25 years ago, uh, that you'd end up uh, with no uh, 40 below in the in before uh, December, and you'd get 40 below stretch in, in January. And uh, there's been in recent years, it hasn't even gone to 30 below a couple of years here, uh, which was really uh, strange. And, uh, you know, you talk to uh, First Nation elders and they tell it's all part of a pattern that this has happened uh, in the past. But uh, some of the stuff that uh, I see right now that's happening uh, and for environmental issues in here is uh, a lot of Canadians think uh, the, the North is all green and everybody's pumping money into this and uh, results. But actually, I think uh, there's more pollution being generated with the money that's coming from Ottawa here rather than trying to fix things or creating more problems uh, for the environment. Well, one part of that, I guess, is the mining. And you mentioned to me in an email that there certainly have been problems. Right. Mining's a backbone of the Yukon industry. And if it's done properly, resource extraction, then it's uh, it's not a problem. But time and time again, uh, we see this, the same model happening in the north. You know, somebody comes in, wants to set up a mine. Uh, you know, there's supposed to be security deposits and environmental compliance and so these mines uh, operate uh, all loosey-goosey. Uh, the government looks the other way. And then uh, when uh, the mine has extracted all the money out of the territory, then the mine just says, well, we're bankrupt and we're going to leave. And the Yukon uh, taxpayers is left holding the bag. But what's happened is the mine has actually taken the money out. The government people have, have got their cut. You know, we're left holding these uh, these ugly uh, resources. And some of these companies uh, aren't even Canadian. Uh, we wine and dine Chinese companies to come here and invest. Uh, they come here, they take the money out, they leave an environmental mess. Let's get to climate change again. Officially, the Yukon is already above the two-degree warming danger mark and even 4.3 degrees C warmer in the winter just since 1948. That's a huge change. So you're one of the world's hotspots and already passed the UN goals set for the end of the century. You know, millions of people further south think if the weather gets too hot that the rest of us will just move up to the Arctic. I don't think that would work out. 
no, this 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 is this is terrible. Uh, you're right. Uh, there's uh, uh, we we know it up here. Uh, you know, we get climate change, uh, all kinds of things happening. But I take a look uh, at uh, what's happening down in southern Canada and down and down in the United States. Uh, yes, it's going to be cooking down there. It already is cooking. It's way too hot. Uh, you know, we're we're seeing that up here, and uh, you know, some of the stuff which is really difficult to uh, to describe to uh, Canadians and people from outside the world. They see the you. Yukon is a big, pristine wilderness and untouched beauty. And yeah, you drive on the highways here, they're, all the trees are clear cut. There's huge carbon heat sinks being created. Uh, you know, Whitehorse uh, is, you just look at it on a map, it's one big piece of asphalt now. And, uh, you know, it's very, very bad for the environment to be able to uh, go in and into nature and uh, disrupt it like that. You know, the, some of the other effects that we're seeing, you know, is flooding here and uh, on and on. Uh, last year, we had a, a major flood. Uh, this year, the ground is already saturated. Uh, the same thing is going to happen. We're going to see major, major flooding here. Glaciers melting, uh, you know, definitely warming up. No question about that. Well, scientists on the show have told us that the Arctic will just get wetter and wetter and rains that used to fall on the southern croplands get pulled further north. And for wildlife and First Nations hunters, that just isn't good news. Right, right. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, the predictions here, and I, I can say in the area that I live in, the Yukon, is uh, milder winters and uh, wetter, damper uh, uh, summertime. Does the Yukon have oil and gas industries, Rob? Uh, there's a little bit of that has been going on. Uh, you know, there's some controversy. Uh, the Yukon government has been pushing fracking. Uh, you know, there was a huge public uh, backlash to that. But uh, anyhow, the, the government and Yukon Energy Corp, uh, the sole provider of energy in the Yukon, is uh, all gung-ho to get into fracking. And, uh, you know, they've all publicly said, oh, they're not doing this. But uh, take a look at the infrastructure. Uh, what do we do? We spent $40 million on a LNG plant uh, to power the Yukon. You know, the, another announcement that just came on the radio, we're setting up green charging stations. Everybody's going green, green, environmental, switch to electricity. Uh, where's the electricity come from? Well, all we're doing is just bringing more uh, generator shacks in and uh, setting them up beside the highway. Uh, so there, there is no long-term uh, environmental plans uh, for resource-friendly uh, energy. Well, does the government of the Yukon have a plan for cutting their emissions and, and sustainability? No, no. Yukon government, uh, hey, there's some good people that work there. Most people just want their pensions and move on. I wonder how Canadians will heat their homes without fossil fuels. It will take a lot of electric power, and we can double or triple that for the Yukon. Does the far north have more rivers that could provide hydro, or what about wind, lots of wind? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I you know the uh, I work in communications and uh, part of the stuff is mountaintop sites and generating power and that's always the enigma. You know that they've done uh, wind studies in the Yukon uh, debacles uh, on and on. They've built wind farms and research centers and uh, they've tore the last one down. They're putting another windmill back up, uh, but uh, you really uh, there isn't a, a real plan on long-term uh, energy generation here. Not nothing besides just a bunch of meetings from the government. There isn't any real action. The Canadian Broadcasting Network, the CBC, just ran a feature story about the remote First Nations community of Old Crow getting off diesel with solar. But of course, solar only works for a few months when there's lots of sunlight in the Arctic. 
Right. I, I've, I've been to Old Crow. Uh, Old Crow is a really neat place. Uh, one of the longest uh, continuously inhabited settlements in North America, the Bluefish Caves. Any you know, the, uh, all isolated. Uh, if you can imagine having to fly in every single thing that, that you need in your house or your community. So building materials, fuel, uh, ATV parts, uh, every single thing comes in by air. So uh, getting off of diesel there, anything you can do uh, uh, will, will save uh, tremendously on that. But as you point out, uh, some of the northern uh, communities, uh, uh, Old Crow stays really, really dark. But, uh, you know, how, how can you uh, generate power when there's no sun? Uh, that's just not sustainable. We've also heard about astronomical grocery prices in the north and just general living costs. And, and now we have this pandemic and there's supply chain issues and all of that. How are people doing? Boy, you know, uh, uh, the Yukon, uh, we are lucky because we're connected to the highway system uh, to southern Canada. You know, there's some disruptions just generally with supply chain. But I really wonder about some of the other communities I've I've uh, spent time in in the far north. You know, uh, Cambridge Bay, uh, Kugluktuk, uh, Calouet, uh, Nunavut, uh, all those uh, remote communities that the price of groceries there is uh, staggering. And what's really difficult with those places, talk about food supply issues. Uh, you have to order your groceries uh, one year in advance, pay everything in advance, and then put it on a barge. And a year later, your groceries arrive on a barge. And if you don't do that, then you're at the whim of going to the local store, and then you're going to start paying $35 for a four liter jug of milk and $16 for a box of cereal. So yes, yeah, food security issues, very, very difficult in those remote communities. I'm Alex Smith, and from the Yukon in Canada's North, we are speaking with Radio Rob Hopkins, known for do-it-yourself radio and television broadcasting, among other things. So our listeners on the West Coast, we have quite a few stations, for example, in California and Oregon, and in Australia, they've suffered through massive wildfires and smoke in the recent years. What's the fire situation in the Yukon? And by the way, does the government have the resources to fight these wildfires? Good question, uh, Alex. Uh, yeah, previous uh, lifetime, I worked for the forestry department. I was a radio operator. That's where I got my radio rob handle and uh, worked on some huge fires that, that we had here. And uh, the last couple of years uh, has not been bad for fires. But uh, my uh, business, I supply emergency alerting equipment for the broadcast sector, and I have clients all over all over Canada. And uh, one, one of my clients is the First Nation down in uh, Williams Lake, the Chilcotin First Nation, and uh, they had uh, record fires uh, two years in a row. And uh, it was all part of that effort, uh, setting up uh, local radio stations so they could provide messaging to their uh, to their citizens in off-grid communities. The amount of devastation that comes from those fires, uh, you know, no matter who's in charge or how much money you have in it, Mother Nature, uh, you're not going to, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance on that. And uh, one of the things that I... Uh, that I found uh, really uh, interesting that happened uh, after those big fires in Williams Lake area was uh, it burned all the mountains, burned all the trees and everything. And then the next year and years after that, now what's happening is when it rains, there's no uh, ground to to soak up any of the moisture. So now we're going to see big flooding happening and flash floods and stuff. So yeah, it's uh, fires, a, a big issue here. Well, with some of the fires in the boreal forests in the north, people used to say, well, it doesn't matter that much because they'll regrow and they'll recapture that carbon. Well, maybe they will a couple of decades later, but some of the places, if they get burned over within five years, it kind of 
kills off the seeds, sterilizes the soil, and, and they may not regrow. They may convert into scrub or, or something else. So it looks like the North now, from what I've heard in the latest science, is becoming a carbon source rather than a carbon sink, even though it's getting wetter. Yeah, there's methane gas being released too. That's a big uh, issue. That could uh, be a huge trigger for uh, some catastrophe and stuff. It'd be right up your alley on your show, Alec. Well, I have covered methane. There's there's two different worries. One of them is that you could get a burp of methane coming up from under the seabed, say off East Siberia, and that's been tracked for some years. Hasn't happened. Maybe could happen. We don't know. But what we do know is happening is the permafrost. Wherever those little lakes form all across the thawing permafrost, they're called thermokarst, then you get methane coming up instead of carbon dioxide. And as we know, it's 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So that's where I think the first big methane challenge out of the Arctic is going to come. It's going to come from the permafrost. Yeah, uh, def- definitely. Uh, uh, hey, uh, I want to just uh, back up on something about indigenous uh, and power uh, stuff. So uh, here we go. Uh, with uh, power generation, there is some uh, uh, interesting news, though, uh, with uh, the First Nation in Atlan, the Taku River Clinket. Uh, they're one of the uh, only First Nation uh, uh, governments in the world that actually own their own uh, power production unit. And they right now they have a, a four uh, megawatt uh, hydro dam, and uh, there's plans to to expand that to uh, 10 megawatts and to uh, hook that up into the Yukon grid. So there is uh, some activity with, uh, with hydro generation here. You know, it's amazing what you're doing. Tell us about your own broadcasting in the north and the new documentary coming out about you. <laughs> yeah, boy, where do I start on that? Well, what are you doing with your radio station? Why don't you start with your radio station and we'll work out from that. I've been a broadcaster in the Yukon Territory now uh, 25 years. I do this out of my small community of Tagish. Uh, I have the first commercial FM radio station in the Yukon, uh, 106.7 FM, and uh, that is callsign CFET. And uh, any of my software runs on different radio stations, including the radio station and Whitehorse. So I provide uh, emergency alerting systems that tie in with the national uh, Helmerich system. So if there's a flash flood or there's a fire, then uh, my systems will receive that information and automatically cut it in and broadcast it to local communities. I'm the only uh, manufacturer of this equipment in Canada that also supports Indigenous languages. So in uh, remote communities, when an emergency alert comes out, it will say in the local dialect, you know, there's a flood or there's a fire, and then the uh, English message after that. That's just brilliant. You know, it is amazing that an individual can become a broadcaster, really. I mean, before I did Radio Equishock on the airwaves, I did it as a 24-hour net station for three years on a computer running out of my living room using radio automation software that wasn't that expensive. So what sort of advice would you offer to listeners who want to spread their message? How to get your message out? Uh, that's a good question. Where I saw all this stuff coming uh, uh, years ago was with social media and being bombarded with uh, all this information. Uh, how do you know what's real? Uh, and uh, right now, uh, you know, you can go to Facebook and good luck, man. Uh, but what I like, what I do like about radio, radio does have trust involved in it. Uh, if I listen to a radio show in the morning and I know the person that's saying it, I go, hey, at least I know who that person is. It's not just some. Uh, robot somewhere. Uh, so so there's uh, some, some level of trust that, that makes radio relevant today. 
And, uh, you know, I love old radio. I love old technology. I like squeezing the life out of old uh, technology and making it still work. And radio is still used uh, not just in North America, but all over the world. Well, we've talked about some of the problems of the North, but there must be a lot of great things about living there or you wouldn't be there. What are some of the benefits of, of being a true North Canadian? The North is a great place to live. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, the, the cities, uh, you know, the, I'm not going to say they're slums, but uh, they, they, they're definitely not representative of uh, the rural Yukon, the real Yukon. And, uh, you know, it's just like any other big city. Yeah, like, like today was great. Uh, you know, I was doing some work at my office. I looked outside and there's a moose uh, eating a bunch of branches. And then there's a fox looking at me in the other window uh, you know, we have lots of uh, elbow room here, wide open spaces. Uh, this is a real luxury uh, uh, right now. I wouldn't want to be uh, stuck in downtown Toronto or Vancouver, that's for sure. Well, I went and built a home in what we call the north, but you'd just call it the far south. But anyway, it was cold enough. But one of the advantages there was there was lots of cheap land, lots of room, and uh, no building inspectors. So you just built whatever you could, and they were glad to see if you could survive there. So I don't know if it's like that still in in the north, but there there's a lot of freedom and space that comes with it that if you go to a place like India where there's packed people everywhere you go, even if you're in the woods, there's several people around you collecting things. It's a different feel that Canadians have, I think. For sure. And, you know, some, some of the uh, things that happens here, especially you see this over time, you know, progress change always going to happen. Uh, you know, there's lots of people that come here, get away, want to see the wilderness. Uh, there's lots of people come here, they want to get away from whatever place they just left Burnaby or Mississauga, and they want to leave all that stuff behind. And what happens is they miss whatever they left behind. And then they want to recreate the problem that they left in the Yukon. And uh, so you get end up with a mess like Whitehorse with all these brought in failed models and uh, all of a sudden everybody says hey we got to do all this stuff and then it's rules and regulations and that ha- that affects us out in uh, in the rural Yukon now we have policies that are being made by people that don't don't even live in the Yukon you can be a Yukon government employee you don't even have to work uh, you don't even have to live in the Yukon for crying out loud what are some of the international environment issues that catch your attention, Rob Hopkins? Yeah, yeah, interesting. I travel around a lot. Uh, yeah, through 30 years, uh, uh, you know, Yukon's my base, but uh, I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, been to China lots uh, over 30 years, seeing amazing stuff that's happened over there. Uh, China, boy, they want to take over the planet. Absolutely. They're plotting and scheming right now, but their plan is not to take over a toxified planet. So they're actually uh, doing quite well in electron, electronic uh, EV stuff, you know, protecting the environment. They still turn a blind eye to lots of other stuff. But it, like I say, they, they, they have a plan. When I was there, uh, they have electric motorcycles, uh, you know, electric cars uh, everywhere. Half of, the, uh, half of the motorcycles are, are electric now. And, uh, you know, they're really good because they don't use uh, any noise, but they're bad because you can't hear them. You get hit by them on the street. You know, the, the other thing which I thought amazing and all the electric stuff in China, was uh, people think you need to have charging stations and huge infrastructure and stuff. Yeah, to plug in your to plug your electric motorcycle in, you just have one of those little chargers like you have uh, right now. You just plug in the wall. It wasn't anything. Uh, wasn't anything big. You know, uh, Thailand uh, before thirty years ago, big messes everywhere, garbage all over the place. They've 
they changed their their culture. They they said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna clean up this mess. We don't want to leave messes all over the place." Uh, you know, when I was in Nan, a, a small town, they had garbage pickup twice a day at houses, and uh, you know that every shop has recycling stuff. They had standardized containers for recycling. This is where you put your bottles. This is where you put your glass. Uh, so they're really really smart on on that. They've done this not because the government has forced them to. They've done it because they have to. And and if you just make a huge mess like we do in North America, you'll have no room in your village for anything. You'll just have a pile of rubbish around your place. So they're very, very resourceful in uh, in how to uh, manage uh, waste and how to uh, recycle stuff uh, to to the max. Like you don't the stuff that we throw out in the in the garbage here in North America that that uh, that feeds a family of four for months and stuff. Uh, just as an example on our on our waste here. You know, everything that we can do to help the environment is good and uh, setting a good example and and making it attractive to recycle. But uh, beating people over the head with a big stick and telling them they have to recycle, that's a bad way to get any policy. So, for example, in the film that you see, uh, Alex, I'm uh, building a TV station from stuff that I found in the dump. That's the premise of the film. And uh, Recycled Radio Rob. That was filmed about uh, two years ago in the dump. And uh, I'm in a small town, 300 people. There's a place where you throw your rubbish into a pit and a recyclable bin and a cardboard thing. So that's now uh, all changed now. That's, again, this is a town of 300 people, less than 300. So now we have a gate on it. We have security. We have uh, buildings on it. Uh, we have 24-hour lighting that that illuminates the whole sky. Here you can't see stars now. And uh, anyhow, we have a, a whole uh, infrastructure now of uh, government employees that are managing the dump. Uh, you know, if there's a free store, you you have to pay for everything that you take to the dump now. Uh, recycling is not encouraged at all. There's a free store that's in the film, uh, Tiffany's Free Store. So it's not a free store anymore. If you want to take something to the free store they put it on a scale and they charge you to take stuff to the free store no no encouragement for recycling here at all yeah very very bad i think that what we will have to do is just end the fossil fuel economy one way or another and uh, if we don't do it willingly and with a long-term plan then nature will do it for us with catastrophe after catastrophe that just knocks out the infrastructure so i'm hoping we do the former and that we get our act together yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, I do see I do see examples of things that work. I wish we would copy more positive models. And rather than going down the, the road of messes and stuff, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there's great uh, hope uh, for mankind if we can get our act together. A CFET radio station here running on that thing. And uh, there's a community radio station in Whitehorse that I'm involved in. I set it up, but it is me, but it's a separate, it's a community radio station. So we'll, we can, uh, I'll give you the link to the community radio station in Whitehorse and you can listen to, uh, you can send that uh, link out there. I appreciate that. I'll put that in my blog and thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Rob. It was great to meet you. Yeah, thanks again for uh, all the information and stuff that you've been uh, providing. Uh, boy, if I feel depressed, I listen to your show. I'm like happier way at the end there. When I when I hear about stories in the Arctic, I think about uh, what do people down south? What is their thoughts about the Arctic? Where, when they hear things, you know, they've watched TV, movies, and and all this stuff and great expanses, and yeah, that's all there. But there's like the environmental stuff that's uh, that's happening here, and some of the things that man made. 
Well, when I came here, Alex, was in uh, 1982. Before I was a hobo hop trains, I came up here in 1982. Now, that, the day I got here was the day they shut the railway down. And the reason they shut the railway down is the, the mine in Farrell had shut down. That was like the largest uh, copper mine going in the world. And uh, it shut down. Uh, the, the entire economy just flattened right out. Uh, never really recovered in, in that scale of a, of a project. But uh, that mine up there, that's actually, that's our Fort McMurray. There's a big mess up there. It's going to take billions of dollars to uh, get that remediation back uh, to wherever. And uh, the people that ran the mine now, they've all since retired, uh, bonuses paid, uh, you know, we're on the hook for it. And when I say we, it's the people in Ottawa that are paying for the Yukon. We get $2 billion a year transfer payments. Uh, those transfer payments are from, from Ottawa to keep the Yukon going. Or those transfer payments go, then, uh, you know, what does the Yukon have left in it? But uh, anyhow, the, there's lots of ongoing environmental things. And uh, happy to share that stuff with you uh, forever. Uh, you know, the, the latest thing in the news uh, was the, uh, uh, the PCR t- uh, COVID tests, uh, you know, Know, they've been uh, you know, the people have been asking for them at Christmas time. Teachers, uh, students, uh, what are we going to do? And we just found out that uh, the Yukon government gave half of their PCR tests to the mining industry. And the mining industry, and this is before Christmas, and then the mining industry comes back and says we already have our own tests. They didn't even know anything about these things. So it tells you where uh, where their priorities are at. Oh, man. Yeah. So you're running Radio Eco Shock from time to time in the Yukon. Is that how it's working? Uh, it plays uh, in Tagish, plays Sunday at uh, one o'clock. And if it doesn't play, then I get people call me and get a hold of me and go, hey, what the hell? Where's, where's Alex? That's the most uh, important thing to listen to of the of the week. I'm, I'm serious, actually. And that runs in uh, Whitehorse, Tagish and, and in Whitehorse and the city and stuff. Yeah, no, I, I get that a lot. Radio EcoShock, providing hard truths to inform citizens and activists. Follow up at EcoShock.org. Yukon broadcaster Rob Hopkins with more on the environment and life in the far north. The royalties are on mining. Uh, yeah, it, it's crazy here. It's crazy how much money we get in royalties from gold. Less than 35 cents an ounce is what is what the royalty rate is here. On $1,800 U.S. ounce of gold, we get less than 35 cents. What's wrong with that picture? Yeah, right Right now, uh, what's hot, what uh, the topic is, uh, people's power bills have come in. And, uh, you know, it was a cold December and January, and all of a sudden people are going, they're doubled. I'm seeing on Facebook, people in Whitehorse, they're paying like $1,000 a month for their power bill. Like a thousand, what you know? I pay uh, eighty bucks a month here, uh, hundred in the winter time and stuff. But how could you spend a thousand dollars? I know, I know why. Because I got sucked into electric heat. The government mm-hmm. tried to greenwash everything and said, "Oh, we want to get everybody off of diesel, and uh, you know, we want to get everybody onto electricity." And now, uh, you know, now they're saying, "Well, now we don't have any power, and uh, we got to bring in more generators." And yeah, who knows what's going to happen on on that? That's a big issue. Uh, but uh, what's underlying on that that most people do not know, and I've just learned about this just uh, recently. So I'm part of the utilities consumer group. And I'm the president there, and it's a lobby group looking out for consumers' uh, interests, mostly in telecom and uh, power. And, you know, we've been at rate hearings forever. 
over in uh, 30 years of, of this. And uh, one of the big issues in uh, Tagish now, 20 years now that I've been here involved in this issue is the uh, Yukon Energy is the sole provider of electricity. They have a dam in Whitehorse and they want to raise the lake level here 10%. And uh, or some some height, and it's gonna it's gonna generate a little bit. It's gonna like two or three percent extra power. It's gonna have more reserves uh, to go through the winter time and stuff. So anyhow, that's the that's the project. And the First Nation have, have not been on board on this uh, on on a number of fronts, and neither of uh, a lot of the people out here. And uh, it's one of these meetings. Everybody goes and the government says, oh, we got support. And they say, well, who supports it? Not one person in the, in the room will say that they support it. But anyhow, the, the environmental issue to this is it's going to wipe out all the uh, wildlife along the lakeshore, you know, the, get rid of a whole bunch of swamps, uh, all kinds of stuff is going to disappear. Uh, and uh, the reason why they didn't they didn't go with this uh, this rate increase to include all this this year, because we had flooding, this would be the bad time to start talking about raising the lake level when people or their houses are too feet under underwater and stuff so that's another issue when i've when i've uh, been at these hearings i've asked uh till i'm blue in the face man like my shirt here and i said okay you've got all the computer systems in the world you've got all the resources you've got everything tell me about your largest customer right and everybody looks around at each other oh geez we don't have that information we don't know who our largest customer would possibly be right or or any of their usage or how they work and i say so you're telling me you're not not even your accounting person could generate a report telling me who your largest user is and uh, when they're using it of course it's the yukon government and uh, my point is is that we have acres and acres of heated lit office buildings uh, running 24 hours a day while there's homeless people on the street at minus 40 and why do we have such waste in our government buildings as one example the amount of greenhouse gases that generates to to heat an empty building for people that uh, don't even have a job that should be in that building. Uh, yeah, it's madness. It's madness. From Tagish Yukon, we have been speaking with Radio Rob Hopkins, longtime independent broadcaster in the north and helping people in many places. Find more about Rob in my blog with links at ecoshock.org. I just want to thank you.